As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. For all the negative things people can say about James Dolan, he is a loyal guy. I know Isaiah, his goal is, is to win the championship. And Isaiah Thomas is a great example of that. Isaiah's a really engaging, charismatic person. As an athlete, as a competitor in this business, you can never have the mindset settling for second. Jim Dolan, like a lot of NBA owners, likes being around celebrity. I mean, Jim is somebody who thrives on validation. While Isaiah Thomas is a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine. He thrives on people telling him how great he is. Don't forget, even after he finally did fire him, he tried to bring him back. What would you say are the chances that we're sitting here and you're involved with the Knicks? That's a slippery slope question. I think you can try to get Machiavellian and kind of ascribe all these ulterior motives. I just think, you know, why is your best friend your best friend? Because they are. I just know that Jim Dolan listens to Isaiah Thomas and still listens to Isaiah, and um, he doesn't listen to many people. There is one relationship that has endured over the years at the Garden. In the face of controversy, bad basketball, bad press, a court case, James Dolan has come to trust Isaiah Thomas. Who made the decision to have Ms. Brown Sanders' employment be terminated by the Garden? I did. I'm Chuck Deep. And Athletic presents Shattered, Episode 3, Jim and Isaiah. By December 2003, James Dolan had had enough. Scott Layden, the person Dolan brought in to replace Ernie Grunfeld as the Knicks general manager, gutted what was left of the 90s Knicks. Patrick Ewing was traded for a bunch of bad contracts and Glenn Rice. Layden made a deal for the expense of Antonio McDice, a trade that happened after McDice had surgery on both of his knees. Knicks fan favorite, Latrell Sprewell, was sent off to Minnesota. The team's sellout streak ended, and the Knicks fans that were in the building were chanting for Dolan to fire Layden. It was time for new leadership at the Garden. Well, the first thing I need to do is, um, you know, clear the clouds that's around our team. Uh, right now, it's a, a very turbulent atmosphere. In a dramatic mid-season move, Dolan hired Isaiah Thomas to run the Knicks. And in Isaiah's introductory press conference, the Knicks owner laid out his lofty expectations 
for his new hire. I know Isaiah, his goal is, is to win the championship, and I hope we win the championship this year. The, um, the, the, uh, um, but the, the, the floor for us is making the playoffs. We, we need to and must make the playoffs. The move to bring in Isaiah was seen as a huge win for Dolan. New York Times sports columnist William Roden wrote, quote, if you love the Knicks and don't like this move, you must be delirious. The timing of the move was curious, though. Typically, most NBA teams wait until the offseason to hire a new team president. But Dolan had a specific date circled on his calendar. Oh, it's the best. It was a classic Dolan thing. Isaiah's first game as a Knicks team president was Latrell Sprewell's highly anticipated homecoming at the Garden. Sprewell was furious over having been traded from the Knicks to Minnesota, and the person he blamed was James Dolan, who would happen to be sitting courtside at the Garden, ready to watch his former star player lead his new team. Frank Isola covered the Knicks for a number of years at the Daily News and is now a host at SiriusXM's NBA Radio and a commentator on ESPN. It was a few days before Christmas. Latrell's going to come in, and everyone knows that Latrell wants to destroy Jim Dolan. What did Jim Dolan do to try to steal the headlines away? Out of nowhere, he fires Scott Layden and hires Isaiah Thomas. And that night against the Minnesota Timberwolves, uh, Latrell went crazy. He At first, he was yelling at Dolan, and he would say something. And Dolan kind of smirked and was kind of like, bring it on. In taunting fashion at uh, Jim Dolan, President, Chief Executive Officer of Cablevision, and Sprewell heating up. By halftime, Jim Dolan's face, he was completely red, but I think he was embarrassed, and he went over to security and complained to them to tell them to do something to Latrell. Latrell Sprewell from downtown and glaring at Jim Dolan. And I thought, listen, I, uh, I like Latrell. I thought he crossed the line a little. To me, he made his point, and he said, you know, he said a couple of, like, really nasty things. And then the next day, it was Christmas Eve. So that game was December 23rd. On Christmas Eve, the Knicks had practice, and Isaiah, like, he cut Clarence Weatherspoon. He cut this guy. He traded this guy. It was, like, nuts. And he basically said, no one will ever do that to our team and our building again. I was like, well, I don't know about that. Isaiah didn't waste any time settling into his new job as Knicks team president. There was a pressure to win, and to win big immediately. Within two weeks of being hired, Isaiah pulled off what would end up being the biggest trade of his tenure. The New York Knicks once again have become relevant in the Eastern Conference with the acquisition of Stephon Marbury and Penny Hardaway. You now see an overall talent upgrade for this basketball team. Stephon Marbury, Coney Island's own, a New York City high school basketball legend, was heading home to play for the Knicks. I remember, the, I remember that day to a tea. I was in my parents' kitchen. I was making breakfast. That is Casey Powell, better known as CP from Knicks Fan TV, a YouTube show dedicated to Knicks fandom. And I remember I was in the kitchen. I had the TV on. I was watching SportsCenter, and across the ticker, it said, breaking news, the Knicks have acquired Stephon Marbury, Penny Hardaway from the Suns for just a package of scrubs from the Knicks. I was thrilled, man. I, w I was absolutely elated because I was always a Marbury fan. Obviously, him being the Coney Island kid, the Brooklyn kid, growing up in Lincoln High School, their games, those PSAL games, championships being played in Madison Square Garden. The story there was so captivating, and you thought it was going to be special, <laughs> but, but it, all, 
it was far from it, man. It all went into the garbage. But, you know, that day of the trade, it was it was a, it was a magical moment. No doubt. The buzz, the positive energy surrounding Marbury's arrival was even being felt by veterans like Penny Hardaway, who came over to the Knicks in the deal with Phoenix. Coming to New York, the story franchise of the Knicks, playing in Madison Square Garden, man, I was excited. I lived in the city. I would drive out the White Plains and, you know, Westchester to go to practice and drive back to the city every time. I wanted to live in the city and get that experience. So just being a Nick, man, you're treated like royalty in New York, you know, because the Nick fans, to me, are the best fans in the world when it comes to the NBA because they're just so loyal and so passionate about what they do. And they deserve championships, like, in the millennium. Like, they really do. And I wish that I was healthy enough. They appreciate the art. They really do. Isaiah continued to act with urgency, rarely seen from a newly hired team executive. Don Chaney was still in place as a head coach of the Knicks. And after just acquired Marbury, Isaiah wanted a coach who could maximize the talent of his new point guard. You just don't have the opportunity to go out and get players such as himself. Um, there are very few players in the league like him. Two hours before the Knicks were set to tip off against the Orlando Magic, Isaiah makes the move that was seen as a foregone conclusion, firing Cheney and two of his assistant coaches. The winds of change oh. blew in a new head coach for the New York Knicks. This story started 25 days ago with the hiring of new team president Isaiah Thomas. Since then, the Lenny Wilkins era has begun. I am excited to be the... Speaking with the media before the Magic game, Isaiah stressed that it's not every day you can hire a Hall of Famer to coach your team. You know, I just thought it was a perfect fit, and I think he's a perfect fit for, for Stefan. The longtime NBA lifer, Wilkins brought both the knowledge of what it took to play point guard in the league and a sense of calm on the sidelines. Wilkins spoke about his coaching demeanor when he was introduced as the Knicks head coach. I'm not a yeller, I'm not a screamer, I'm demanding, okay? And, and I don't make a whole lot of expressions. At that press conference, Stephon Marbury made an appearance. He hopped on stage and gave a hug to Wilkins. It was just about picture perfect. Two Brooklyn natives, Wilkins, the Hall of Fame point guard, guiding Marbury, the team's superstar, into a new era of excellence for the Knicks. The new additions brought on by Isaiah immediately provided a jolt to the franchise. The team's record that season under Don Chaney was 15-24. Under Wilkins, the Knicks played above 500 basketball and made a late charge towards the playoffs. The team got swept in the first round by the New Jersey Nets, but it seemed like Isaiah had delivered and that the Knicks were set up for success heading into the 2004 season. There was a feeling of, like, optimism. Fox Sports' Chris Broussard covered the NBA for the New York Times and ESPN during Isaiah's run at the Garden. I mean, this is Isaiah Thomas. This is one of the greatest players to ever play the game. Hall of Famer, respected for his basketball knowledge. So there was a feeling of optimism when Isaiah Thomas was hired. And then Stephon Marbury, Lenny Wilkins. It looked like Isaiah Thomas had really turned the team around. In the offseason, Isaiah added talent to pair with Marbury. In the 2004 draft, he grabbed Trevor Ariza in the second round. Then he traded a package of players to the Bulls for Jerome Williams and a 24-year-old Jamal Crawford. Madison Square Garden was already, like, my favorite place to play before I actually played there. I get to play here every single night, and they're like, go ahead and do your stuff. Like, I'm like, oh, like this is like a basketball player's dream. 
The deal with the Bulls that brought Crawford to the Garden was a microcosm of how Isaiah would acquire talent. No question, the Knicks got the best player in the deal, but acquiring all that talent came at a cost. All four of the players the Knicks traded were on expiring contracts. That gave the Bulls financial flexibility going forward. Crawford and Williams were on expensive long-term deals that would end up clogging up the Knicks' cap sheet. But still, adding Crawford to go along with Marbury made it feel like the Knicks were finally on the right track. The start of the 2004 season, I think there was a reasonable expectation that the Knicks were going to be solid. It didn't turn out that way. Howard Beck, now at Sports Illustrated, covered the Knicks for nearly a decade at the New York Times. His first season on the Knicks beat was the 2004-2005 season, which was supposed to be Lenny Wilkins' first full year as the Knicks head coach. But it didn't work out that way. And there was controversy from the beginning. Like, there were two weeks in, and they mysteriously fired Lenny Wilkins' longtime friend and assistant coach, Dick Helm. Like, who just fires an assistant coach two weeks into, an, into a season? And it wasn't the head coach doing it. That was the front office. That was Isaiah. There was a face-off at one point between two of the assistant coaches, Mark Aguirre and Brendan Sir. And these were both Isaiah guys who were on Lenny Wilkins' staff. And there was a jockeying for position about who was going to sit in the front row and this kind of stare down. So that was weird. Shandon Anderson wasn't happy, a veteran who had you know been to the finals with the Jazz and who was now on the Knicks and had multiple years left on his deal, wasn't happy, was kind of outspoken. They don't like outspoken at the Garden, so they wanted to get rid of him. They didn't want to buy him out. They said they weren't going to buy him out, then they finally buy him out. So this is all a couple weeks into the season, and you've already had all these really weird little flare-ups. So it it the, the signs were there, I think, early on that, that this was probably not going to be a smooth season for the Knicks. The small controversies increased the pressure around Wilkins. The Knicks were around 500 for the first half of that season. And then, right after the new year, the Knicks' fortunes turned for the worse. They go on a four-game losing streak, including an ugly 25-point loss to a young LeBron James and the Cleveland Cavaliers. Stories start to come out about Wilkins being on shaky ground. The Knicks pick up one win, and then lose another four straight games, heading into a matchup against the Houston Rockets, coached by former Knicks head coach Jeff Van Gundy. Frank Isola was covering the game for the Daily News. Lenny Wilkins never was fired or quit a job midseason. He was coaching the Knicks, and they lost to Jeff Van Gundy and the Houston Rockets on a last-second shot by Scott Padgett. I walked in to the Houston Rocket locker room after the game. Tom Thibodeau was there. Steve Clifford was there. And I said to Jeff, I said, you had it all the way, right? And Jeff said, can you believe they fired Lenny? I said, what? He said, yeah. He said, Michael Malone just came in here and said they fired Lenny immediately after the game was over. And I was like, come on, get out of here. I walk out of the locker room. Now I'm trying to track down the story because I know that they're telling the truth, right? I could tell that Stephen A. Smith also is kind of onto something as well. So I wrote that night, that the Knicks were firing Lenny Wilkins. The next day, Lenny Wilkins show up at the training facility to read off a prepared statement that he had decided to resign as coach of the Knicks. You think that Lenny Wilkins, basketball lifer, lifer, okay? Coming home to New York, he played basketball. He was a star in Brooklyn. He's coaching now the New York Knicks. In the middle of the season, in a game against a better Houston Rocket team with Yao Ming and Tracy McGrady, on a last second shot where his team played well, He's announcing his retirement from the sport. Does anybody honestly believe that? After 81 games across two seasons, Lenny Wilkins resigned as head coach of the New York Knicks. Wilkins said it was his decision to resign. 
but even some of his own players didn't believe that. Jerome Williams, who was previously coached by Wilkins in Toronto, said, quote, I know he didn't want to leave. He's not a quitter. He's not quitting on us. But quickly, the focus shifted on who would be the next Knicks head coach. I think if you Googled Larry Brown and Peripatetic or Larry Brown and Wanderlust, you'd get more hits than any other coach you could plug in to Google with those adjectives. Like Those are basically affixed to his name as permanent modifiers. Larry Brown's interest in the Knicks was unusual. Brown was just a season removed from winning that 2004 NBA championship with the Pistons. And in 2005, he was still currently coaching Detroit in a season where he'd take the Pistons again to the finals, this time losing to the San Antonio Spurs in seven games. On top of all that, less than a week after Lenny Wilkins resigns, Brown, a Brooklyn native, tells the New York Post that the Knicks is his dream job. Larry was always looking for the next thing, that Larry would be with a championship caliber team on its way to a second straight finals, but looking for greener pastures would surprise no one ever in the history of basketball who's ever known anything about Larry Brown. That's just kind of Larry. Still strange, uh, even by Larry Brown's standards, it only got weirder from there. So Larry Brown is out in the Hamptons that summer, I think doing a basketball camp. And so now this becomes, the Hamptons become Larry Brown Central. There was also another factor that should have given the Knicks pause in hiring Larry Brown. The Knicks star player, Stephon Marbury, and Larry Brown had a history. Frank Isola. We all knew that it was going to be a disaster. I had covered the Olympic team in 04 with uh, Stephon Marbury, played on the team, Larry was the coach. When the rumors were going around that Larry Brown might be the Knicks coach, I would talk to people from USA Basketball, and they said that Larry, at one point during the training for the Olympics, came up to USA Basketball, and he said, we got to get rid of Stephon Marbury and Allen Iverson. And I, apparently there's something with an Olympic oath that you just can't, after they've made the team, you can't just cut them because you don't, they don't play good enough defense. There has to be some kind of violation, you know, I guess like a doping test or something like that. So USA Basketball had to tell Larry that's not happening, but they really butted heads. So I wrote that story about the whole thing at the Olympics. Larry and Stefan Marbury were butting heads right from the start. It was so bad at the Olympics. Marbury explained on a live stream the links that he went to at the 2004 Olympics in Athens, Greece, to avoid interacting with Brown. I would get up an hour and a half before we had to go to practice, go sleep on the back of the bus, just so I wouldn't have to walk by him to say hello. Marbury also ran through a conversation he had with Isaiah as Brown was about to be hired as the Knicks head coach. Isaiah said, he's gonna be good for you. I said, why? He said, look, who playing the most minutes? I said, he could put me on a bench. As is often the case with Stefan Marbury, there's another side to the story. Howard Beck says Marbury helped recruit Brown to the Knicks. He went on radio and expressed support for the hire when it was being reported that, that Larry Brown was being pursued by the Knicks. He called Larry Brown directly and, and helped recruit him. Now, maybe that was the garden pushing him in that direction and Marbury just being a, you know, a good employee, but Marbury helped recruit Larry for, for better or worse. You know, at, at least at that time, it seemed like there was a mutual desire to work together. 
Whether it was Marbury's recruiting efforts or the allure coming back home to New York or the five-year, $50 million contract James Dolan handed him, Larry Brown became the latest Hall of Famer to take over the Knicks' job. Coach, welcome to the Knicks. I can't promise wins and losses, but I promise every single day we'll do our very best to make people proud of our franchise and our players and the way we play. The hiring of Larry Brown was seen as a massive success. Brown was a champion, a Hall of Famer, point guard whisperer, a New Yorker, and the Knicks roster was looking more promising as well. In the draft, Isaiah selected an exciting trio of rookies in David Lee, Shannon Fry, and Nate Robinson. Quentin Richardson, a proven scorer, was added through a trade with the Phoenix Suns. And the Knicks added two big men, Eddie Curry, an emerging offensive force, and Jerome James, who parlayed five strong games in the playoffs into a five-year, $30 million contract. He got hot over a series. Not even hot. He played well. Jason Concepcion with Crooked Media is a lifelong Knicks fan. He had no history of ever playing well, and he played well in this series. And they threw the fucking bag at him. And by the way, that's like part one of a multi-part tragedy. At that point in time, you're thinking, okay, this is a bad stretch. They'll f- hopefully they figure this out and clear the cap space, clear out all this, this dead wood. And that never happened. Like, it just kept going. Jerome James had like five good games. Brown's first and only season as the Knicks head coach was a toxic mix of controversy, chaos, and incompetence. At the center of it all was Brown and Marbury. The Olympics in Greece was just an appetizer. Their season together at the Garden was a buffet of embarrassment. For the reporters that covered the team during that season, Frank Isola and Howard Beck, they witnessed a year unlike any they had seen up to that point. Barberry and Larry Brown were oil and water. Or if there's something more toxic than that that you could throw together, I'm not a chemist, but whatever the more toxic combination of things is that uh, would just explode on impact, that would be Marbury and Larry Brown. The Knicks were on the road. Marbury got outplayed in a game, and Marbury told the media, I'm convinced it came from Isaiah. Like Marbury said to the media, I want Coach to play me the way that he played Allen Iverson. I wanted to do that. So when we went over to Larry, you know, you know, Larry's like, "That's all great, but he ain't Allen Iverson. There's only one Allen Iverson." So like, they were butting heads all the time. Marbury's self-image, what he valued was being able to score at an all-star level. He called himself Starberry for a reason, and so he wanted the freedom to be able to to do things the way that he always had. Larry Brown wanted him to become more of of what Larry Brown viewed as a traditional point guard. And that was a constant theme from day one once Larry got there. The Knicks had a game against uh, Milwaukee. Marbury gets outplayed by TJ Ford. So we're in the uh, press room and Larry's talking and Larry says, you know the pro, you know, I look at Milwaukee, they got a point guard that comes down. He recognizes score, clock, time. He runs their offense. He's like, we play like we don't have a head out there. Who is he killing? I'm like sprinting up to like upstairs to the press room to write how Larry basically is saying that the Knicks have a headless point guard. He was killing Marbury. You knew that the Larry Brown, Stephon Marbury clash had reached basically historic heights of toxicity when you get to Denver one day and at a shoot around, 
they're holding back-to-back dueling press conferences in which Larry Brown is speaking at one end of the court, saying a bunch of stuff about Marbury. Marbury's talking at the other end of the court, saying a bunch of stuff about Larry Brown. They they did not hold back, and they, it got it got personal. It got pretty insulting. I don't think I've ever seen a head coach and star player so openly feuding in the NBA. Antonio Davis was in his final season of his 13-year NBA career when he joined the Knicks. Isaiah brought in the rugged power forward to be a veteran presence on the roster. I'd never seen nothing like it before in my life. Even in uh, in rec ball, I ain't seen nothing like that. Davis had played professionally in Greece and Italy. His career in the NBA took him to Chicago, Toronto, and Indiana, where he played under Larry Brown. But the situation he was put in the middle of at the Garden was still shocking to him all these years later. I mean, to me, everything happens from top down, right? So you figure if you go to New York and it's Isaiah and whoever else they had at the time, and you and you walk in there and you witness some of the things you witness, you're like, oh, I mean, as soon as I got there, I felt like, oh, something is not right. Like, this is, this is not good. Larry Brown has always had a reputation for being hard on point guards. Allen Iverson, Stephon Marbury, and in that single season at the Garden, Knicks rookie, Nate Robinson. As a rookie, as a young guy, you know, like you, usually your, your name is Rook. You know, he's always called me little shit and I didn't like that shit. Robinson says Brown would call him little shit constantly in front of his teammates. And at one point, Robinson tried desperately to get his head coach to stop. You know, I would go to his office and you know, I would try to have a one-on-one talk with him and try to be the bigger man and be like, look, coach, I'm going to have a meeting. Uh, you know, I want to talk about, you know, you know, how you talk to me and what you say in front of my teammates. You know, I asked him nicely, can you please you know, not call me that, you know, and one day I got so frustrated, I was like, you know, damn, they're crying tears because I was so mad, I didn't know what to do. And then the minute I left his office, he came into the locker room and told my whole team that I came into his office crying. He said, you got the little shit coming in my office crying about me telling him, me calling him, you know, the little shit, blah, 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 and, da, 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 da. and I'm like, bro, hold on, I thought when we talk, this is about me and you. Why are you telling my business to the rest of the team? Like, this is not their damn business. This is between me and you, mano y mano. So, it was a lot. It was a lot of shit that was going on. And I had to, you know, accept it because he was a coach. He had the power of, you know, putting me in the game and, you know, play, giving me the minutes. So I had to kind of take it on the chin and just, you know, shut the fuck up and do what I was supposed to do, you know, do what I was supposed to do. We reached out to Larry Brown for comment. He did not reply. Brown did discuss the incident with Bleacher Report back in 2018, where Brown said he does not remember calling Nate Robinson little shit, but says if he did, Brown says he would feel terrible about it. Brown's exacting style, which worked in Philly and Detroit, wasn't producing good basketball in New York. The Knicks began the season on a five-game losing streak. There was a point that year where the Knicks won just two games over a 24-game stretch. Part of what was fueling the losing, says Howard Beck, was Brown's odd decisions when it came to the Knicks' starting lineup. He spent the season almost looking like either he was trying to get fired or that he was just trying to make things really uncomfortable. They set a record that year for the most starting lineups in NBA history to date. Larry Brown used 42 different starting lineups that season. That was by far a record. He did really strange things. Like he went through this whole stretch where he, like a college coach would do, was starting players in their hometowns. So Matt Barnes got to start when they were in Sacramento because he was from Sacramento. And Trevor Ariza got to start against the Lakers in LA because he was from LA. And then when they were in Seattle, Nate Robinson, who's from Seattle, and Jerome James, who had played for Seattle, got the start 
because they were in Seattle. And then the weirdest one, David Lee, who was actually from St. Louis, but had played at Florida, which is like the University of Florida in, in Gainesville, like a hundred and something miles away from Orlando, got the start in Orlando. That is not the indication of a coach who was necessarily trying to win or find the best starting lineup. I don't know what that was, but it was bizarre even at the time, and it sounds even stranger now saying it out loud 15 years later. Part of what may have played in the Browns' constant lineup changes was that Brown was never satisfied with the players he had on the roster. You know, Larry was used to having a certain amount of authority in determining personnel. He wanted Jalen Rose at one point, and then he soured on Jalen Rose. He pushed for the Steve Francis trade. And then he soured on Steve Francis, in part because Steve Francis and Marbury realized, or at least concluded, that Larry Brown was trying to play them off of, off of each other, and Marbury and Francis kind of banded together against Larry. They were unified in their disdain of, of the coach. It is not unusual for a coach to fall in and out of love with players on their roster. Except it wasn't Brown's job to call around the league looking for trades. It was Isaiah's. And Brown's pursuit of the perfect player created a significant rift between himself and Isaiah. Larry versus Marbury. Larry eventually versus Isaiah. Isaiah versus Larry eventually. There was Isaiah versus Marbury. The three of those were the most toxic mix I've ever seen of team president, head coach, and star player. In a span of 11 months, James Dolan went from handing Larry Brown a five-year, $50 million contract to firing him. And this was now the second Hall of Fame coach that Isaiah hired that lasted only a year. This time around, there would be no coaching search. Dolan decided it was time for Isaiah to take full control of the team. Things are kind of a mess. At that point, Jim Dolan is basically feeling like, Isaiah, this is your mess. You clean it up. Prove to me that, it, that coaches who failed before, that it was on them and not on you, essentially. Team president and head coach. Isaiah, whether he wanted to be or not, was solely responsible for the Knicks. For the players on the roster of that 2006-2007 Knicks team, going from Larry Brown to Isaiah Thomas was a relief. Nate Robinson. Way different. Game elevated. I averaged more points, more assists, more steals, more minutes. I just I blossomed. I felt more comfortable. Jamal Crawford says having one of the great point guards of all time as head coach opened up his mind to new possibilities on the basketball court. He could break down a game. Like most people, when they come off the pick and roll, for example, they may see maybe two options. Okay, if this isn't there, that means that is there, right? He could see one, two, three, anticipate where the fourth guy was going to be. Like he was so far ahead. And it was like, wow, like you saw that? Just everything, every small detail. Like he was really in the details. After the chaos and Brown's lone season at the Garden, Isaiah attempted to bring in some order to the team. He established a set of rules that were aimed at making the Knicks a more professional organization. One of those rules came from Isaiah's time being coached by Bob Knight at Indiana, something rarely seen in the NBA, a dress code. We couldn't get on the plane or travel without a suit and tie on, period. You could have a suit on with no tie, you wouldn't get on the plane. So like small, small details he was so into, and that rubbed off is infectious. One of the biggest issues in the Brown era, at least according to James Dolan, was the amount of leaks that were coming out of the Knicks locker room. To combat this, Isaiah invented a safe zone, a special seat, where whoever was sitting in it would have to tell the truth. It was known as the honesty chair. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it speaks for itself. Like, no matter what it is, 
you can't lie when you get in that chair, right? Like you can't lie to yourself. You can't lie to your teammates. You can't lie to your family as players being family. You can't lie to any of that. So it was the honesty chair. It was pretty much one of the funniest things you had to do. You had to sit in the chair and like, you had to be honest when you sat in that chair. Jared Jeffries joined the Knicks in Isaiah's first season as head coach. Jeffries isn't so convinced that the honesty chair had the impact that it was intended to. Man, listen, it, it, the stories, oh, the stories. Well, it's, I mean, it's hard telling because only you know the truth. So I don't, it sounded like a good idea at first, and then it really didn't. It wasn't, it, wasn't like, it wasn't like a polygraph test, but like you knew you were right or wrong. You could say the thing you wanted to, and it just kind of came out. The dress code and the honesty chair, it all smoothed over some of the rough edges from the previous year. But the Knicks under head coach Isaiah Thomas still remains stuck in controversy, both off and on the floor. Yeah, I was part of that stupid fight. I was, I was the one that got fined the most because I was the highest paid player in the fight. One of the ugliest scenes on the floor was early in Isaiah's first year coaching the team. Carmelo Anthony and the Denver Nuggets visited the Garden in a highly anticipated matchup. Coaching the Nuggets was George Carl, an old friend of Larry Brown's. We were struggling. We weren't playing that well. That game had a lot of significance because, you know, George Carl and Larry Brown were really close. So, you know, we kind of felt like that was, you know, George and Isaiah going back and forth for what had happened with Larry. The incident occurred, and we all got to live with it. It was a black eye for all of us. It was a bad mark on basketball. It was ugly. George Carl says from how the game unfolded, there was no indication a fight was about to break out. It was not a physical game. It was not a dirty game. I don't think it was a poorly refereed game. I don't think any of the things that stimulate kind of battles in the, in the game. The Nuggets had a 10-point lead over the Knicks to start the fourth quarter. That lead grew to 17 points in the final minutes, but still Carl kept his starters out there. My feeling was I, I, I'm on the road. I can win the game. I'm not going to mess around. I'm going to play my guys. And I guess that's where Isaiah got the thought that I was trying to rub it up. I actually felt the game was uncertain. We weren't playing dominant defense and we weren't dominant offensively to say that we're going to win this game easy. With the Nuggets starters still on the floor, Isaiah is spotted by MSG's cameras saying something to Carmelo. I don't know what he's smiling at. It was Carmelo Anthony that he's having a conversation with. Isaiah said after the game that he was telling Carmelo that the Nuggets starters should have been on the bench. Carmelo's agent, Calvin Andrews, had a different story, saying that Isaiah told his client that he should stay away from the basket. With two minutes left, Isaiah calls a timeout. Isaiah says something in the timeout about not letting them embarrass us and don't give any more layups up. And Marty Collins, being naive, thought that meant like go out there. And, like, what Isaiah is saying is like keep playing hard. If someone drives at you to the rim, like don't just give a layup up, contest a shot. Well, JR had a fast break and Marty came and tackled him, and then the whole thing went crazy. Smith on, there's a flagrant two foul. He's going to get thrown out of the game. Greg Robinson throwing a punch. Smith coming right back at him. Knicks guard Marty Collins takes down Denver's J.R. Smith during a breakaway dunk attempt. The players all bunch up near the paint. And when it looked like things were beginning to settle down, Carmelo comes back into the picture and punches Collins in the face. It took nearly 10 minutes before the court was cleared and the teams could finish the game. What I was pissed at Isaiah about is what he said after the, afterwards at the press conference, saying that I was trying to run the score up on him, that I was, you know, I should have gotten my guys out of the game. And that's not me. And that's never been me. Well, that pissed me off. 
And, and then to do that after the press conference when there's this big bonfire going off on the fight, throwing more gasoline on it, and it pissed me off. You know, he was associating blame for a nightmare that doesn't, we don't need to argue about blame here. We need to be all apologetic for what we did. A total of seven players from both teams were suspended. Carmelo got 15 games, the most out of the group. The NBA launched an investigation into whether Isaiah instigated the fight. That investigation closed without punishment because of a, quote, lack of adequate evidence. The Knicks under Isaiah as coach went 33-49. and 49. For a basketball team that was stuck in a long streak of losing seasons, the fight with the Nuggets cast a harsh spotlight on the Knicks. Soon, though, the franchise would become engulfed in a scandal that would overtake anything that was happening on the court. Who made the decision to have Ms. Brown-Sanders' employment be terminated by the Garden? I did. More on that coming up after the break. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. If you're as obsessed with basketball as I am, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. Hey guys, this is JJ Redick. Twice a week, I'm cooking up something special for basketball junkies on my podcast, The Old Man and the Three. I bring on guests in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, like Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash, or Paulo Bencaro on his shooting workouts with Kevin Durant, Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron when they were teammates in Miami. But it's not just about the player interviews. Every Monday, I break down the top three things happening around the NBA without the outlandish takes. Often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler, we dive deep into topics like rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is mean mugging now a tech? The Old Man and the Three is the only companion podcast you'll need during the playoffs this year. Be sure to listen to The Old Man and the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, certainly if it happened today in the Me Too world, it might not have happened today. Selena Roberts is a former sports columnist for the New York Times. I think that uh, the Garden might have acted very, very differently to uh, Anuka Hachi had issues and come to HR wherever she would have gone, you know, in today's world and describe what she was going through, there may have been a very different response than to fire her. In January 2006, in the middle of Larry Brown's disastrous season at the Garden, James Dolan fired Anuka Brown Sanders, who goes by Anuka Brown now. Brown's official title at the time was Senior Vice President of Marketing and Business Operation for the Knicks. A few days after a firing, Brown sued the Garden and team president Isaiah Thomas for sexual harassment. Before the matter went to a civil trial, Dolan was given the opportunity to settle the case. I had a 
entrenched source at the garden tell me that the people in the organization who were, who were under Dolan, obviously, were begging him to settle. Harvey Arrington, who along with Selena Roberts, wrote about the trial as a sports columnist for the New York Times. So in defiance, basically to say, no, I'll not be cornered into a settlement, he allowed it to go to a civil trial, and he wound up losing, what, $11, $12 million, and dragged the, the organization, his supposed good friend Isaiah Thomas, Anuka Brown-Sanders, who's now Anuka Brown, and the entire league through the cesspool, the cesspool of stuff that came out during that trial. It was totally unnecessary. In an interview with HBO Sports, Dolan said he did not settle because he, quote, believed in the truth and that he wasn't going to settle because that would be an omission of guilt. With no settlement, a civil trial was put on the court calendar for September of 2007, right before Isaiah Thomas would be starting his second season as the Knicks head coach. Here now are the reporters who covered that trial. Everything they learned about what it was like to work at the Garden. My name is Katie Cornell. I worked at the New York Post as a reporter covering federal courts. My name is Tom Zambito. I was at the Daily News for a little over 12 years and um, covered the Manhattan Federal Courthouse, covered a number of you know, high-profile organized crime trials. This trial was a very big deal. It contained incredibly salacious allegations against Madison Square Garden, Dolan, Isaiah Thomas. You know, this became sort of a cliffhanger. You know, every day people were waiting to see, you know, who would testify next. Even the, you know, everything was getting out on the front page. Yeah, it was clear right from the beginning that it was going to be a very interesting and important case to cover. I can recall early on, you know, just in the jury questioning the voir dire, they call it before they're impaneled. The judge was asking them if they had opinions about the Knicks. And, you know, people would say, I don't think he's doing a very good job as a, and as a general manager. I think he should have traded for this guy or that guy. And I think at one point somebody said, you know, he made a big mistake putting Latrell Sprewell on this team. And the judge, to his credit, said he didn't he didn't dra- he didn't trade for Sprewell. <laughs> you can't tag Isaiah with that one. Anuka's claims in a nutshell, the sexual harassment, the romantic overtures by um, Isaiah Thomas, and that, you know, she had made complaints about the treatment of her and the treatment of other women. And as a result, she was terminated. And then for the garden on their side, they basically said she screwed up a few budgets. There are a number of different PR miscues, essentially claiming that she wasn't doing, uh, wasn't up to the job. And the question became, you know, whether or not when she realized that she might lose her job, she went to, I think she went to Steve Mills and said, you know, I need this job. You know, can you at least uh, keep me on until I can find something else? That's the garden's version of things. Certainly not Anuka's. Anuka Brown Sanders had made a claim that there was pervasive misogyny, sexual harassment at the garden. Stefan Marbury, he was not a defendant in the lawsuit, but his testimony was really an essential component of the case because arguably the most salacious allegation involves Stefan Marbury. There was an intern a uh, garden intern who was called to the stand at one point. She was called by the garden's attorneys and she was, you know, she thought she that uh, Anuka Brown Sanders had sort of pressured her into d- discussing, you know, some of her interaction with Stefan Marbury. Who 
celebrated her birthday party with members of the Knicks at a strip club. She happened to be dating Stefan Marbury's cousin. After this party, she was leaving and Stefan Marbury pulled his truck up next to next to her, called out to her, are you going to get in the truck? And her answer was yes. And she got in the truck and they, they had sex in the truck. You know, Anuka, at one point, there was some testimony that she had called this young woman into her office and, you know, demanded details about, you know, what happened with Marbury and, and Marbury's cousin, pressuring her in a bit to, to talk about these things to sort of establish the frat culture. But in turn, in fact, when she got on the stand, she said, I went, you know, I went with Marbury willingly, you know, I wasn't drunk, I was in control. And so sort of, you know, suggested that you know, no one had, had, had pressured her. When Anuka Brown-Sanders described hearing about the intern's complaint, Anuka Brown-Sanders was crying. She said her understanding was that this intern felt that she could not say no, that she had to do what Stefan Marbury said because of who he was. You know, the intern described it as consensual because she agreed to get into the truck. But from Anuka Brown Sanders' perspective, it was not a consensual experience for the intern because she felt she had no choice. But in a lot of these things, it does come down to a, you know, a personality contest. And it's, you know, one one side is trying to get their narrative out there. And clearly, you know, both sides were coached in how to present their case to the jury. Stefan Marbury, the day that he testified, that was the most memorable day for me. I remember just his swagger. He basically admitted on the stand that he thought the whole lawsuit was a joke. And he had no qualms about admitting to this, you know, sexual experience with the intern in his truck. You know, he sounded like a pretty credible recounting of events, if embarrassing. I mean, he had to uh, admit to some bad language uh, he used in reference to a number of the women. He admitted to calling Anuka Brown Sanders all kinds of terrible things, like bitch. If you became aware Mr. Stefan Marbury referred to Anuka Brown Sanders as a black bitch. Would he have been disciplined? As best I could, yes. Isaiah is, you know, he's been a public figure forever. And, you know, he understood how to portray his side of things. You know, he, I do remember that he, he really tapped into this idea of his humble beginnings uh, in the west side of Chicago, grew up poor in the projects. And, and that all came out. You know, it was elicited testimony elicited by his attorneys um, to great effect. Isaiah Thomas sort of characterizing his conduct as just like his way, like his personality that he's, you know, he's very friendly and charming and that this is just how he behaves with people. I also, you know, remember his frustration with her. His claim was that you know, she really wasn't doing a very good job and that she was making him do all kinds of ridiculous things for marketing purposes, like including sign hand signing like over 4,000 letters to ticket subscribers. And this is one of the incidents where he called her a bitch and used all kinds of profanities. Um, I mean, even Anuka Brown Sanders admitted, like in her testimony, that that was not a good marketing strategy. <laughs> Critical piece was 
there's a popular movie at the time, it was called Love and Basketball. And they said they were playing horse and Isaiah at one point said something to the effect of Anuka, you know, now I know what it is, it's love or, you know, suggesting that he loved her. You know, obviously he denied it, didn't, you know, denied he ever said that. I think there was, you know, this question of he hugged her at some point. She sort of didn't appreciate that, went to Steve Mills and Mills told her, told Isaiah, don't hug, don't hug her anymore. So there was a lot of behind the scenes. I think there's a lot of refereeing, you know, what the interaction between the two of them. Being someone who's not really a sports person, this was my introduction to Dolan, honestly. His demeanor was so dismissive and unprofessional. At the garden, is it appropriate for someone to refer to another employee as a black bitch or a bitch? No, it's, it's not appropriate. It's also not appropriate to murder anyone. I don't know that that's happened either. And just, he struck me as very egotistical and dismissive. Did you consult with counsel about the decision to fire Ms. Brown Sanders? No. In fact, and I, I specifically, did, I think, did not consult with counsel. People take the stand uh, or in depositions, they're clearly coached by their legal team to, you know, portray themselves credibly. In his testimony, I think Jim Dolan sort of rejected that. And he just, I'm going to be myself. I'm going to say what I'm going to say, what's on my mind. And clearly it was, you know, it was raw. It was, you know, he wasn't guarded at all. I didn't think. I think he just kind of, he was himself. Did you make it on your own or was it with uh, others? consultation or something else? Well, all decisions at the garden I make on my own. And, you know, he was asked in his deposition, do you know what retaliation means? Essentially, it is um, a action taken against a person in response to their making an allegation, a formal allegation. Do you believe that Ms. Brown Sanders made a formal allegation? Yes, I think she did. I didn't think that his de- deposition helped him at all. On the contrary, I thought it was very damaging. When you have to reveal what goes on behind the scenes, sometimes when you peel back that curtain, it's never pretty, whether it's about Stefan Marbury and with interns. Uh, you know, once you peel back the layer, you know, it's uh, it gets a little little bit unseemly either way. Anuka Brown Sanders, she conveyed vulnerability on the stand. You really got the sense that she had been through a lot. There was a lot of emotion there. And, you know, at that point, as spectators at this trial, we had been exposed to not only her allegations about what occurred, but also, you know, the defense against these allegations, which further injured her by talking about how she, you know, she wasn't doing a good job. She was going to get canned. She was impossible to work with. So she, she had, she was just really beaten up. And the testimony was divergent. Somebody was lying. Somebody wasn't giving a full version of the truth, you know, and that's sort of for the jury to decide, right? But clearly there were opposing viewpoints, you know, whether or not Isaiah had called Anuka um, Brown Sanders uh, the B word, you know, whether they played 
horse together and he said i loved her uh, he loved her that sort of thing it was you know i i thought it was a fairly close call it basically was a credibility case you know who believed who i was really turned off by dolan by the responses of steve mills i was turned off by their their argument i thought that even though there was an element of he said she said to the case i was convinced by listening to the testimony that this type of conduct was happening at the Garden. There was no question. A New York jury has called a major foul on Knicks coach and president Isaiah Thomas. Jurors ruled that Thomas sexually harassed a former female top team executive. They said Anuka Brown standards was subjected to... I was very surprised, I have to say, by the size of the verdict. It's a big verdict, though. 11.6 million. That's a big verdict. That's just on the punitive side. And then the judge was going to have to decide the compensatory because he had to calculate how much back pay she was owed and those sort of things. So it was, uh, that's a big verdict. The jury's verdict indicated that, you know, while they believed Isaiah Thomas had engaged in this pattern of sexual harassment, they did not hold him financially accountable. So they did not find that he needed to pay damages. They deadlocked on that. You know, the jury saw that there was an element of he said, she said with respect to Isaiah Thomas. The nearly $12 million verdict was a bombshell for Selena Roberts, the trial, all the details that came out of it, put an exclamation mark on how toxic the garden under James Dolan had become. It was a, kind of a jarring look at how dysfunctional that you knew it was as an organization, but also just misogynistic. Really kind of a, a behind the scenes cutthroat world that it was came out in that trial. It was just another reason too, in many ways, to, to look at the ownership and think, wow, something's got to change there. Is this going to be the moment that changes everything at the garden? Is this the moment that Jim can't recover from and will either just say, you know, I don't want to do this anymore or, you know, would uh, somebody else, maybe the NBA, step in and try to force a change of ownership? As for Isaiah Thomas, he has maintained his innocence to this day. Immediately after the trial, Isaiah spoke with reporters outside the courthouse. I want to say it as loud as I possibly can. I am innocent. I'm very innocent, and I did not do the things that she accused me in this courtroom of doing. After making those remarks, Isaiah immediately made his way to a helipad at Wall Street to begin his journey to Charleston, South Carolina, where the Knicks were holding training camp at the time. The Knicks that season bounced from one embarrassment to another. Even as strong as Isaiah and Dolan's relationship was at the time, there was simply too much pressure on the franchise to make a change. In April of that season, Dolan hired Donnie Walsh, a longtime executive with the Indiana Pacers, to run the Knicks. About a week and a half later, Walsh fired Isaiah. Isaiah's first tour of duty at the Garden ended in disaster. But in the soap opera that's the Knicks under James Dolan, Isaiah Thomas is a recurring character. It was actually Jim's idea. In 2015, less than a decade after the sexual harassment verdict, Dolan brought Isaiah back to the garden to run the New York Liberty, Dolan's WNBA team. He, uh, he asked if I, if I would uh, be interested in running a team because he knew of my stances on, you know, just me as a person in terms of my stance on equality, uh, my stance on the game. 
for Selena Roberts. Dolan's connection to Isaiah all links back to what she believes Dolan looks for in a relationship. I mean, Jim is somebody who really enjoys and thrives on validation. He thrives on people telling him how great he is. He loves the fact that you love him and he fancies himself as somebody who can, you know, judge character. And yet all the characters around him are sycophants. When you want to be on the right side of Jim Dolan and on the right side of Jim Dolan is a very lucrative, you know, position, right? He pays for that love in many ways. So when Isaiah Thomas sort of walked into Jim's life and Isaiah is very charming and Isaiah knows how to read somebody and he read Jim incredibly well. He read him so well that Jim just felt like he couldn't, he couldn't live without him. In Isaiah's four and a half seasons running the Knicks, the team had a record of 141 wins to 241 losses. The team's payroll hit numbers never seen before in the NBA. Some of the first round picks Isaiah traded during his run became Gordon Hayward, LaMarcus Aldridge, and Joakim Noah. The Knicks were in the hole when Donnie Walsh took over in 2008. There was an incredible amount of work to be done to overmake the franchise in time for the summer of 2010, when the NBA's next generational talent would pick where he'd be taking his talents. The entire world was waiting to watch the outcome of the decision, including the President of the United States. Much more on that next time on Shattered. Subscribe to Shattered wherever you get your podcasts and check out more great stories about sports and culture, plus ad-free episodes of Shattered. Go to theathletic.com forward slash Shattered to get a special offer on a monthly subscription. Shattered is part of The Athletic's culture coverage. Shattered is executive produced by Chuck D., Lori Bula, and Matt Havia. Mike Smeltz is the producer. J.P. Hesser is the engineer. Tayo Papula is the audio editor. 